Welcome to Cato Audio for September 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, we get an insider's view of Canadian health care from Sally Pipes of the Pacific Research Institute. The ACLU's Christopher Calabrese delivers a sobering warning about national ID cards. Randall O'Toole unmasks the ugly conceit of urban planners. Pat Nolan details the other side of drug laws. And Tom Palmer lays out what's at stake in Washington's current culture of crisis. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. In a rare move, the U.S. Supreme Court has allowed a case to be reheard. It is the case of Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission, a very important case for campaign finance reform, a very important case for the First Amendment. I'm talking now to John Samples, a director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government, and Steve Simpson, senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. And I should also mention that John Samples is author of the book, The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform. Gentlemen, welcome. So just to get started here, this is kind of an odd case in the sense that this was a case of the Federal Election Commission banning the pay-per-view broadcast of a feature-length motion picture. Walk us through the details of the case. Yeah, basically a group called Citizens United put together a film called Hillary the Movie, the obvious purpose of which was to criticize Hillary Clinton and uh, argue that she wasn't a very good person or a very good uh, candidate for office, although it never really came out and said that. It just it attacked her character in kind of documentary form. But because it was financed and distributed by a corporation, and corporations are not permitted under the federal campaign finance laws to spend money for so-called express advocacy, which is essentially calling for the election or defeat of a candidate, the distribution of that film was barred over pay-per-view cable during the relevant time period, which is 30 days before a primary or 60 days before an election. So. The basic question in the case is, is that constitutional? Can the United States government ban a film because it is financed by a corporation and criticizes a candidate? Now, wasn't there a similar situation regarding Fahrenheit 9-11 back in 2004? There was. I don't know precisely what the outcome of that case was, but I do know that Citizens, I think it was in fact Citizens United filed a complaint with the FEC saying Fahrenheit 9-11 was the same thing against President Bush. That case didn't end up going anywhere. The FEC decided not to pursue that after an initial investigation. That was interesting because that was sort of, you're right, Caleb, it was a sort of forerunner for this in the sense that uh, it was one of those moments where, as Citizen United is, where the real nature of campaign finance law comes into view. And in the Michael Moore movie case, they wanted to run commercials. And they were going toward doing that, which led to a complaint before the uh, FEC. And it was becoming clear that, you know, these commercials and perhaps this movie, if it were shown in the right venue, would violate campaign finance law. So uh, in a sense, a face-saving maneuver was arranged in which the movie's producers agreed that, well, they really didn't want to, and it took it out of the public sphere. But it was going to come again, and now it's come with a different set of actors, and we're face-to-face with the reality of campaign finance law. The reality of campaign finance law being that corporations are prevented from actively engaging in campaigns in the oral argument what was the court trying to find out? What did they say? This is sort of a rare chance we have here to – we've already got an oral argument and we've already got a lot of concerns of the justices on the record. Steve Simpson, what were the justices trying to figure out in quizzing the attorney for Citizens United and quizzing the attorney for the government? They wanted to know how far does this corporate ban take us and uh, Justice Alito among other justices, raised the question, well, if you can ban a film because it criticizes a candidate near an election, what can't you ban? What about a book that says vote for or vote against a candidate that is distributed at the wrong time or, frankly, just paid for with corporate dollars? As we know, every book in the in creation practically is published by a corporation. So what about books? What about movies? What about anything else? Not least, the media is a good question as well, although they get their own exemption from the campaign finance laws. There's an important uh, distinction going on here, too, that uh, about what this case and what follows on concerns and what it does not. You mentioned being engaged in campaigns and corporations not being able to do that. 
For a long time, corporations and then later labor unions could not engage in campaigns by giving directly from corporate treasuries to campaigns, in other words, a direct relationship with candidates or parties. This case isn't about that. In other words, if this case leads to a result that it liberalizes campaign finance law, that kind of law will still be in place. You won't see multi-million dollar contributions to the campaign of Barack Obama or whoever else runs against him. This is really about independent spending, that is spending independent of candidates or parties by corporations. The case that is really at the heart of this is a case called Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce. And it's interesting because if you look at what concretely was at stake, Michigan said that corporations couldn't spend money independently and the Michigan Chamber of Commerce had proposed essentially to have an ad that had a candidate's name for the House of Representatives on it and a bunch of information about why they thought he would be good for the economy. That was it. No money, no bribes going anywhere, just an ad going out there to the public saying, here's some information. And if Citizens United succeeds in the way we think it might, that will be legal. States won't be able to ban those kinds of ads. Going back to the oral argument, we had Justice Kennedy who raised, I think, perhaps the most interesting question, at least from the perspective of how people communicate with each other and new forms of communication. John Samples, you have your Kindle here with you. Justice Kennedy raised the issue of, well, what about a book that is itself a digital satellite-based communication? And you made the point before of what the bounds are of campaign finance law, but this really goes to the very edge of the bounds of banning Books. Yeah, that's right. And what Justice Kennedy was doing there was responding to the government's point that, well, the law doesn't currently actually on its face cover books. It covers communications for or against a candidate. The electioneering communications ban, it's those that identify a candidate through essentially broadcast means. So Justice Kennedy piped up and made exactly the point you just made, Caleb, which is, well, what about the Kindle? The Kindle receives downloads of books from satellite broadcast stations. That seems to come within this statute. And indeed, as we see in the Citizens United case itself, that involved something very similar, the downloading of a movie via on-demand cable. If that is within the confines or within the restrictions of the statute, then why wouldn't a book being downloaded to your Kindle be? And there is no good answer to that other than, of course, it would be, unless the government just decides to exempt them, you know, in kind of a an unprincipled carve-out for something that the Supreme Court was concerned about. And John Samples, you've made this point as well, that if the government were to restrain itself mm-hmm. in pursuing these avenues of regulation, that is uh, Kindle, YouTube for that matter, other broadcast or cable-based communications, it's not a matter of government being restrained. This is a matter of government choosing to restrain itself to avoid being embarrassed or to avoid perhaps losing certain regulatory authority. That's correct. I mean, a couple of things happened. The central point is a correct one. You want a constitution that constrains government, not that leaves it up to the government or the public officials to constrain themselves. The whole point of the First Amendment, a point made very well in uh, long time ago in Justice Scalia's dissent in Austin versus uh, Michigan Chamber of Commerce was that the First Amendment is based on the idea that you can't trust, that the incentives are all bad. You can't trust public officials to protect freedom of speech. That's why the Constitution says, shall make no law, because the framers knew that if they started making laws, things weren't going to happen well. Now, the other point here is, I think there is this embarrassing element to it, which with the Michael Moore and also the whole business about um, the government's uh, brief in Citizens United, which is that revealed, you know, they could actually ban books. They do drop back at the moment at which they seem to be going too far, that there's this embarrassment that, oh, yeah, well, the law does actually permit banning books or banning movies. They do drop back, but as Steve said, it's an unprincipled, and it's for now, and it's in this case. The whole point of the Constitution is not for now or at discretion of the governors, but rather on the you know, for the benefit of the people that are not the governors. The history of campaign finance law shows that that pullback, that embarrassment is very, very fleeting. Buckley started with the idea of quid pro quo corruption, giving a contribution to a candidate 
in exchange for political favors. Well, not too long after that, we expanded the concept to undue influence, anything that unduly influences the judgment of a candidate. Then we went beyond that to this idea that, well, corporations spending a lot of money completely independent of candidates, that distorts the debate. That's another form of corruption. We went beyond that now to, in the McConnell case, it was, you know, even the possibility that somebody might circumvent all of these restrictions that we've put in place in the campaign finance laws, that's another form of corruption because, my goodness, people could get around these laws. The point is this. Today's alternative avenue of free speech is tomorrow's loophole. Somebody wants to engage in issue advocacy, which is supposed to be ironclad protected. A couple years later, everybody is saying when they're debating BICRA, wait a minute, this is just sham issue advocacy. They're just trying to get around the law. This idea that you know, the fleeting kind of grace of the government and saying you're going to be allowed to continue speaking, don't worry, is complete nonsense. It doesn't even last years anymore. What about the public? How does the public feel about the First Amendment generally, John Samples, and campaign finance law more specifically? Well, I think one you can say a couple of things. One is that, of course, when the public's asked and over the last 50 years and public opinion polls about uh, the First Amendment and other parts of the Constitution, they're very supportive. The difficulty comes when they're asked about specific instances of tough, concrete cases of protecting the First Amendment. And so often there we find and have found that the public uh, doesn't come to the defense of the, the communist that wants to speak at town hall or whatever the form of the public opinion question. So this is why we have judges and courts and some independence from the political system of both of those so that you know, the better uh, angels of the public over the time and multi-generation can actually be used to prevent the government from impinging on rights that uh, the people have. There's another point that goes directly to Citizens United and the whole question of corporations being involved, which is that the public, uh, there's a lot of evidence that the public, corporations and business have been defined in a negative way over a period of time uh, in the United States. And that, uh, therefore, a willingness to say, well, the definition that we're really getting here is there's something wrong with this corporate speech. It's, I mean, we had at one point the Supreme Court say it was a corrupting influence, a distorting influence, not just another kind of speech. That, I think, is a dangerous notion here, too, but very widespread. The problem with this notion that corporations distort the debate is that you can really say that about any kind of speech you don't like. I think distortion is just another way of saying, I don't like what you're saying and I really wish you'd shut up. Here's a great example of that. Right now, President Obama's debate over health care is being horribly distorted by all of these annoying town hall protesters who are showing up at these meetings to capture the terms of the debate. Well, guess what? That's what free speech is all about. You're supposed to be allowed to try to distort the debate. People then make their own judgment and they decide whether to pay attention to you or not. And all of this, this entire debate, leaves aside the fact that individuals must walk into the voting booth eventually with their own judgments and their own biases and uh, their own uh, prejudices and make decisions ultimately. Well, there's an interesting part of the scholarly literature on campaign finance regulation that asks the question, you know, is it really, is it just a form of paternalism? It's not that it's corrupting or involves money or that, but that people are afraid that uh, voters will be so easily swayed. They will have in, in an, another kind of version false consciousness. They really won't be able to act on their interest as because their interest will be distorted or, or defined in the wrong way and that uh, campaign finance regulation is a way of preventing that. As John pointed out in his book, that's entirely contrary to the whole Madisonian plan for the Constitution. So, you know, freedom is supposed to be messy. Now, the Supreme Court has agreed to rehear this case. And uh, John, if I understand you correctly, you said that was in part to open up, to reopen the case of Austin and consider whether or not to hang on to that case wholly. What is likely to occur based upon what the two of you know? Well, what we do know is that uh, this case of Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce was decided about almost 20 years ago that three members of the current court were dissenters in that case. That is, the case decided that states could indeed prohibit independent corporate spending. Three members, Scalia, Kennedy, and um, Thomas, 
dissented in that case. Those, so you got three out of the five you need to overturn Austin. And the other two that have been added only recently, Justice Roberts and Alito, are presumed to be also leaning in that direction given what we know from other opinions. If Austin is overturned in some sense, and I think most people, even those on the opposite side of this issue from me, believe that that's likely to happen in some way. They're going to cut back on what they held in Austin um, and in McConnell. There is a big question as to whether or not they will say, okay, all corporations can spend money on express advocacy if they want, as long as it's independent of politicians, versus, well, only a carve-out for nonprofit corporations. Justice Kennedy kind of went back and forth. He wrote the chief dissent in Austin, and he really took the majority to task. But he kept using the term nonprofit, and, and a lot of people have speculated, well, maybe you know, with Roberts and Alito on his side, they'll just say, okay, nonprofit corporations, because they don't spend quite as much as for-profit corporations. We'll make a carve-out for them, but we won't go as far as for-profit. I think that would be a huge mistake, but it's entirely possible. Let's assume the best or worst, and the Supreme Court, in a principled manner, decides that there is no fundamental difference between Gannett Corporation and Monsanto Corporation when it comes to talking about candidates and opinions and attempting to influence the outcomes of elections and this corporate ban is wiped away. What would the world look like, the campaign finance world, what would it look like if that were to occur? Well, I suspect there would be additional litigation to establish the exact parameters of where we are at this point. There might have to be some changes of laws and so on. The long and short of it is I'm not sure a lot would change immediately. Over time, you might see a return to the pre-McCain-Feingold world in part, in which you would see uh, some uh, corporate entities entering uh, into some elect congressional elections and doing what was done in Michigan Chamber of Commerce, that is, having fairly direct independent campaigns in areas where they have an interest. Now, I don't know how much of that there would be. That's a complicated question. I don't, you're going to hear a lot of fear-mongering in the next two or three months that, you know, it'll be a corporate takeover of democracy and corporate money. The favorite is always flows in, so we'll be flooded. It's not going to be anything like that. And it wasn't like that before McCain-Feingold. But it did create a lot of... Uh, unhappiness among members of Congress who are being criticized. And that's the real, my real question would be, when they're once again criticized, uh, they're going to take umbrage about it, and they may once again try to attack this kind of speech. Steve Simpson? It's safe to say the politicians will be unhappy. Whether that's a bad thing or a good thing, I leave up to the listener. But yeah, in the short run, I don't think corporations will just uh, start pumping millions of dollars into independent ads. What I think you will see probably is a lot of the ideological groups that don't currently meet other exceptions in the law and some kind of corporate industry type groups like the Chamber of Commerce will probably, you know, immediately come back into the debate and start running ads and that sort of thing. But it'll probably stay on the level of like the Citizens United type of groups will be spending a lot of money. That'll happen across the board. There are groups like this all across the ideological spectrum. I think the corporations, the business corporations will tread lightly. They'll They'll touch their toe in the water a little bit, but they have a lot to lose by kind of just jumping in with big, splashy advertisements real quick. After all, Caleb, we talk about documentary films all the time. Those were a lot of them are going to be made by corporations. They'll be inside that uh, that window, and they won't have anything to worry about. Uh, many of them will come from the political left. They won't have anything to worry about. One thing to keep in mind here is this notion that corporations speak with one voice is nonsense. There are tons and tons, thousands and thousands and thousands of corporations in this country. People create corporations for all sorts of reasons. So it's not like we have this monolithic, you know, big business corporation versus the whole, you know, rest of the world. So what it'll do ultimately is it will open up the debate to a lot of diverse viewpoints. Something politicians might not want to have happen. Well, gentlemen, we'll have to leave it there. John Samples, the director of the Center for Representative Government at the Cato Institute and author of The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, and Steve Simpson, senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. I just now realized that both of you were featured in a, a short film that was produced by uh, Austin Bragg and myself, which Cato Audio listeners uh, should have received in the mail in August of this year. So to get ready for the oral argument, which should be occurring on September 9th, 
2009. That would be a good start. But you can also watch it if you did not receive that. You can watch it at our website, cato.org. Pat Nolan, vice president of Prison Fellowship, has seen two sides of the criminal justice system. As a lawmaker, he supported get tough laws to go after drug kingpins. And as a convict serving time for accepting an illegal campaign contribution, he saw that the laws he championed had failed utterly. He spoke at a Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing in July. One of the things we say at Justice Fellowship is prisons are for people we're afraid of, but we fill them with people we're mad at. And it's a great cost, not only to the individuals who are incarcerated that way, it's a great cost to the public. Because uh, while they're incarcerated, they cannot support their family. They oftentimes have children. That burden either falls on relatives who aren't prepared, a grandmother or an aunt or something to take care of them, or on the public. They go on welfare. In addition, the costs of them returning to society, they don't come out better than they go in. You know, that, that's the sad reality. The skills they learn to survive inside prison are of necessity antisocial and make it more difficult for them to live productive, contributing lives when they get out. And that's a burden to society. We spend $68 billion on our prison system today. $68 billion, of which a majority is to incarcerate people that we're mad at, that we're not afraid of. There are better ways to handle the folks we're mad at. Society has a right to say don't use drugs, but the real question is, how's the best way to treat that? Do we gain by throwing them in prison? And the reality is no, treatment in the community is shown time after time to be much more cost effective. Now they're sent to prison and the myth that as a legislator I assumed they all got treatment. Wrong. They don't get less than 10% of the prisoners that have a drug addiction are treated while they're in prison. And Joe Califano, former secretary of HEW, who now is at CASA at Columbia, says to take an addict and lock them up for 5, 10, or 15 years, but do nothing about their underlying addiction, and then release them on society is a fraud. It's an absolutely fraud on the taxpayers. They're still an addict when they get out. We've done nothing to deal with their addictive behavior, but we've cost the public a fortune, and we've destroyed their lives. Why does that make sense? As a conservative, I questioned every field of government, Cal OSHA, Caltrans, the DMV, but somehow I turned a blind eye to our prisons. And I think it's time the conservatives started holding our prisons accountable and our criminal justice system accountable for making things better. Locking them up and doing nothing about their underlying drug addiction is not making things better. We could save much more money treating them in the community, letting them pay child support to their families, letting them hold real jobs, and hold them accountable to show up at their appointments. A judge in Hawaii, Steve Om, who is a former uh, U.S. attorney there, now a state judge, has a program for the uh, probationers where they come into court, and if they're dirty, they go straight to jail. But not for six years, which is usually what happens when they're violated, they do the end of their whole sentence, but for 24 hours. And it's a way of hitting them up the side of the head and say, we're serious about this, get back in treatment. A lot of these folks are just knuckleheads that can't follow the rules. We need to help them follow the rules. Our object is to get them into treatment, not to send them to prison and be a burden on the taxpayers. A couple of things, in addition to the physical cost of holding them in prison and of supporting their families, there's a tremendous cost to society and the denigration and degrading of our law enforcement. When I was a kid, there was a bumper sticker that was very popular, support your local police and keep them independent. Those were prescient people. They knew the danger of federalizing law enforcement. And uh, one of the things that they found is if you have all this SWAT equipment and all this SWAT training, the temptation is to use it. I mean, you've gone through all this, let's use it. And so what you do is you dumb down the criteria for doing it, so you're using it the drop of a hat and terrorizing innocent people. There are thousands of cases across this country that happen, some of which sadly result in death of the totally innocent people. A grandfather in the Sacramento Valley area shot with his two grandchildren staying over on a sleepover, shot dead in front of his grandchildren, and he wasn't involved at all. They had the wrong address. 
So we've, number one, undercut law enforcement that way, but also we've taken good people, good uh, law enforcement people that want to do good for society, but put temptation in their way. The amount of money involved in drugs is huge. I did time with a sergeant from the LA Sheriff's Department who said spread out on that table were $100 bills, a table about 10 feet by 4 feet, stacked at least 2 feet deep with $100 bills. And all he had to do was take his gym bag and scoop off a corner of it, and he'd pay for his children's college education. And he succumbed to temptation. He knew it was wrong. He admitted it was wrong. He was caught red-handed. And he did his time. But why did we put a good man like that in the danger? I'm, I'm a Catholic, and one of the things we say in the act of contrition is to avoid the near occasion of sin. Why would we put the near occasion of sin in front of an officer like that? We've driven up the cost so much that billions of dollars are involved in it. And that's why this officer, who otherwise would have been a terrific police officer, gave in to temptation. It was put there in front of him. Why dangle that in front of him? We've also eviscerated the Bill of Rights, has been discussed, asset forfeiture, Again, offends uh, decency. One of the interesting things, and those of you that work for a congressman, I hope one of you will ask your boss to put in an appropriations bill, a study, because I've been told by a police chief from a large city on 95 that this is the case. The northbound arrests are a tiny fraction of the southbound arrests. And why is that? North Brown, they're bringing the drugs into the city. The poison is coming into our city and corrupting our youth. Southbound, the cash is going out. And if they seize drugs, they have to destroy it. It's of no value to the department. If they seize the cash, they get to use it. They get to buy the fancy cars. They get to seize the car that the guy was involved in. So it's a profit-making, and we've corrupted whole departments based on this asset forfeiture law, too. There's an inherent conflict of interest to allow them to seize these assets, and they should be facing the northbound. The last thing I'll say to you is, this has been an experiment, as prohibition was. It hasn't worked. And as conservatives, we need to admit when something hasn't worked and look at something more effective. George Washington warned us. He said, like fire, government is a useful servant, but a fearful master. The Canadian experience with national health care has produced waiting lines and rationed care, but it hasn't produced the preventive and patient-focused care that just about everyone wants. So says Sally Pipes, a former Canadian, now president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute. Pipes is author of the new book, The Top Ten Myths of American Healthcare. She spoke at the Cato Institute's Hayek Auditorium in July. People who live in countries with socialist government-run systems wait and wait. Silvio Berlusconi, the Prime Minister of Italy, when he was told that he needed a heart pacemaker, he didn't listen to Michael Moore and have it implanted in Rome or Paris or London, even Havana, Cuba. He came here to the Cleveland Clinic where he had his heart pacemaker installed. My mother, who in June 2005 was convinced she had colon cancer. And she went to her primary care doctor who said, no, you don't have colon cancer. So living in San Francisco, when my mother told me that, I said, well, how does he know? And she said, well, he just told me I didn't. So I said, well, call him back and tell him you need a colonoscopy. So she did. And so she went to see him. And he said, well, at your age, we cannot provide a colonoscopy for you. We'll do an x-ray. Now, anyone in the medical profession will know that an x-ray will not show whether you have colon cancer, but it's certainly cheaper than having a colonoscopy. In late November, my mother called me and said, I have colon cancer. I said, how do you know? And she said, because I'm hemorrhaging from my colon. So I called the doctor and I said, well, now what do we do? And he said, well, you'll need to take an, get her to, into an ambulance to go to the hospital to get into the emergency room, because if you take her, she will never even get into the emergency room. It'll be a tremendous wait. So we arrived at the emergency room and my mother spent two days in the emergency room. But the more interesting fact was 
that then she spent two more days in the transit lounge at Vancouver General Hospital. I don't know how many of you travel internationally, but if you fly from San Francisco to London on your way to Rome, you spend a few hours in the transit lounge in transit waiting for your plane. But to spend two days in a transit lounge waiting to get a bed in a ward is not, I think, what the American people want. My mother finally got a colonoscopy in the hospital, and she died two weeks later. Her colon cancer was so severe. When governments control hospital budgets, this is one way to keep costs down by denying care. When I turned 50, hard to believe, but I did, my doctor in San Francisco said, you have to have a colonoscopy. And I said, well, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need a colonoscopy. And he said, well, we want to get a baseline about you know, your colon. And so I had one, and I will have one every five years because that is what is good, and that's what the American people want. That does not happen under a system such as exists in Canada. A woman in Calgary, Alberta, Canada's third largest city, the most American of Canadian cities because of the oil and gas industry, she was expecting quadruplets. So she called her doctor and said, I think I'm in labor. He said, well, I'll call you back. And she said, all right. And he called back and he said, you know, we don't have a single neonatal unit for your delivery here in Calgary. Also, we don't have one in Alberta. And we can't find one in any neighboring province. But we will airlift you to Great Falls, Montana, a city of 55,000, where your quadruplets will be delivered. And that is exactly what happened. But as a Canadian, and as many Canadians do, Canadians have an escape valve. They can come to the United States and get health care, and a lot of them do, and they're not just wealthy Canadians, they're middle-income Canadians who want to live a long and healthy life. So when you hear the president and people in the administration saying, we can reduce costs if we don't have so many expensive hospital specialty units and specialty hospitals, you know, for this woman whose quads were delivered successfully, it was very important not only to her life, but to the life of her quadruplets, and she had that escape valve. If you look at the United Kingdom, because of the long waiting list there, now Britain, under the National Health Service, they allow private health care to run parallel to the NHS. And the government took over the health service in Britain in 1947. And when the Canadians were talking about taking over the health care system in the 70s, they went to England to find out, well, what are the good things and what are the bad things? And the thing that was most important to the people in Britain and told the Canadians was, you do not want to allow private health care to run parallel to the government-run system because people then can make comparisons, and that's not a good idea. So Canada doesn't allow private health coverage. It's all run under the Canada Health Act, and each of the provinces manage their health care. So that's a very important point, and I think that is what the president wants here in America. He said at the annual meeting of the AFL-CIO a couple of years ago, if I were to design this health care system from scratch, I would design a single-payer health care system. He knows he can't do it overnight, but he wants to take us slowly from A to Z. Belinda Stronick, former member of parliament in Canada, her father, Frank Stronick, Magna, a big auto parts manufacturer. She was elected as a conservative and then a liberal in parliament. She opposed opening up the Canadian healthcare system to any private alternative. And yet, when Belinda Stronick in June 2007 was diagnosed with breast cancer, what did she do? She didn't sit on a waiting list. She flew to UCLA and had her breast cancer surgery done and paid for it out of pocket. It was fine for her, but it's not fine for the majority of Canadians. As my dear friend in Vancouver, Dr. Brian Day, who is an orthopedic surgeon and the immediate past president of the Canadian Medical Association, told me he grew up in Great Britain in council housing along with George Harrison of the Beatles. Most people here are too young to know who George Harrison is. He left England and came to Canada and trained as a doc and then did orthopedic specialty, and he runs a private clinic in Vancouver called the Canby Surgery. The British Columbia government is suing him because he is doing surgeries and MRIs for people who are paying out of pocket when they, have, they should, under the Canada Health Act, be waiting on a waiting list to get government-run care. When Brian was elected president of the CMA, he told the New York Times, Canada is a place where a family can get a hip replacement for their pet, their dog, in under a week, and yet Canadian families have to wait over two years 
to get a hip replacement. Is that what we want here in America? I think not. The ugly conceit of urban planners, according to Cato Institute senior fellow Randall O'Toole, is that we need them at all. O'Toole believes that planners, land use planners, transportation planners, and others let their values drive how they design your city and your lifestyle. And, O'Toole says, it's a grave threat to liberty that largely goes unnoticed. He spoke at Cato University in July. Most urban planners went to school at an urban planning school that is associated with an architecture department. Now, architects tend to have big egos, and those big egos lead them to believe that by shaping people's buildings, they shape people's lives. They love to quote Winston Churchill, who said, we shape our buildings, and then our buildings shape us. Well, urban planners go to the next step. They say, we shape our cities, and then our cities shape us. But the we and the us are different. We, the urban planners, shape our cities, and then our cities shape you, everybody else, is what they really mean. So it's philosophy of physical determinism. If we can design the city a certain way, people will stop driving, they'll start walking, they'll start bicycling and riding transit, they'll use less energy, they'll emit less greenhouse gas emissions. As uh, Washington Post writer Joel Garreau wrote, planners uh, seem to think that human behavior is malleable and nobody is better equipped by dint of intelligence and education than the planners to do the malleting. They believe that the physical environment they wanted to shape could and would shape society. Well, they can't very well say this in public. So how do planners convince politicians and people to go along with their ideas? Well, they use a technique that is called, in the planning literature, strategic misrepresentation. And usually when they say it in the planning literature, they say strategic misrepresentation, parenthesis, lying. For example, they use a process they call visioning. They'll come to your community and they'll have what they call a charrette. There's actually a National Charrette Institute that teaches planners to do this. They'll say, we want you to help us decide the future of your community. They put you in a room and they ask you certain questions and you're not allowed to deal with anything else. You're not allowed to deal with anything like cost or cost effectiveness or you know, what the results are going to be. They ask you questions like, do you want more pollution or less? <laughs> and if you say less pollution, they say, uh-huh, they want higher densities. Okay, do you want more greenhouse gases or less? Oh, less? Well, then you want higher densities. Do you want more congestion or less? Well, if you want less, that means you want higher densities. So then they'll go back to the city council and say, the vast majority of the people in this community want higher densities. That's their vision for the future. Now, they write these 50-year visions for cities. Vancouver, B.C. just put out a 50-year vision. Portland has a 50-year vision. And, you know, try imagine writing a vision 50 years ago, or for historical convenience, imagine writing a vision for your city in 1950 that was a vision for what it should look like in the year 2000. Now, in 1950, no one had ever dialed a long-distance phone call. No one had ever direct dialed a long-distance phone call. No one had ever flown in a commercial jet airplane. No one had certainly ever programmed a spreadsheet or used a word processor or ordered anything on the Internet. So any plan you wrote for the year 2000 no matter what you wrote, any plan that was written would have one thing in common with every other plan written for the year 2000, and that is it would be wrong. It would get almost everything wrong. You'd probably put a great big train station in the middle of town because everybody's running around on trains in 1950, and you wouldn't put a lot of highways in. You'd certainly have you know, maybe a little tiny airport somewhere, 
and you'd assume that everybody worked downtown and would commute downtown. You wouldn't put any jobs anywhere else except downtown. Today, less than 8% of Americans work downtown. You couldn't have predicted any of those things, and so your plan would be wrong. And yet, planners today want to write a 50-year vision for the future. So they sit you down, they get you to write your vision, and then they persuade you that your vision is the ideal city, that you'd really love to live in a city like that, and you wouldn't want to risk that the free market might come up with a different solution, would you? So we have to have big government to force our vision on the future. And that's what urban planning is all about. One planner wrote, or a planning advocate, here's his vision, imagine 1881. You leave the office on Wabash in the heart of vibrant Chicago, hop on a train in a handsome, dignified station full of well-behaved people, and in 30 minutes, you're whisked away to a magnificent house surrounded by deep, cool porches, nestled in a lovely, tranquil, rural setting. This must have been a glorious way to live. Well, what he doesn't mention that only about 5% of Americans in 1881 could afford to live that way, because transportation was so poor, most Americans had to walk to work. They couldn't afford to take a train. They couldn't afford to take a streetcar, which in those days were pulled by horses, but still cost too much money for most people to afford. Nobody in the city except for the very wealthy could afford a horse. So pretty much 95% of the America's urban population was confined to walking to work, which meant they lived in very high-density tenements right next to the factories they worked in, which were very dirty, polluting, and uh, tended to be a lot of disease sweeping through their tenements, tended to be crime, lots and lots of problems. The reason why that is is because trains are really, really expensive. Woo-hoo! Doesn't matter if it's light rail, streetcars, high-speed rail, it's really, really expensive. Let me give you an example. The average American spends 23 cents a passenger mile driving their car. Trains cost over a dollar a passenger mile. Transit, on average, costs 81 cents a passenger mile. That's buses and trains put together. Trains are much more expensive than buses. So over a dollar, four times as expensive. The only reason why Washington Metro Rail works, the only reason why the New York City subway works is because hardly anybody uses them. Only 8% of travel in the New York urban area is by train, much smaller in Washington, D.C., and everywhere else. Everybody else gets to pay for it, even though they never use it. If everybody used it, our transit systems would go bankrupt trying to tax everybody enough. Our cities would go bankrupt. We would go bankrupt trying to pay the taxes to keep it going. Uh, a friend of mine has calculated that we spend on an average about 8%, 9% of our incomes on transportation. If we relied solely on rail transportation, we would be spending 120% of our incomes on transportation to do the same thing that we get today from the automobile. The introduction of a bill called the Pass ID Act in the Senate has renewed the debate about the national ID. Pass ID purports to improve on the moribund Real ID Act, but the central question is whether there should be a national ID at all. Christopher Calabrese of the American Civil Liberties Union addressed the risks to liberty created by a national ID card on Capitol Hill in July. When you adopt a national ID card, suddenly you're right to do a lot of things that used to be just your given right as an American, whether it's to travel, whether it's to work, whether it's to enter a federal facility, is derived from a credential. Now, suddenly, instead of just being able to do these things, you need the government's approval. There's a reason that show us your papers, please, is so closely associated with repressive regimes. Everything from the Soviet Union, clearly it played a part in the uh, horrors that happened in World War II. National ID cards basically can turn into a lot of things. They start as a simple way to identify individuals, and then they creep into a way to control how individuals move. There's a reason that national ID cards were rejected by the Reagan administration. 
President Clinton called them creeping big brotherism. Of course, they are creeping big brotherism. I mean, what else are you going to call a system that creates a massive infrastructure for tracking our movements and for controlling where we go? The ACLU has always been concerned, of course, about mission creep. You see recently Senator Schumer said that he would like a national identification system to be used as part of electronic employment verification so that everyone would need some kind of identification. And he's actually talking about a biometric fingerprint identification. So now suddenly you're going to need to have a national ID card in order to work. Real ID and pass ID, of course, have these problems. You know, real ID you needed to travel. Under pass ID, what you see is still a difficulty getting on an airplane, a lot of TSA discretion if you don't have a pass ID in how you're going to, whether you're going to be allowed to board an airplane. And some indeterminate amount of federal facilities you won't be able to enter if you don't have a pass ID. In addition, of course, to the mission creep and internal passport concerns, there's also a concern about the bureaucracy that national IDs cause. To take an example from a real ID context, in Alabama in 2005, the state of Alabama wanted to get a jump on the real ID requirements. So what they said was that every Alabama license, the name on every Alabama license must exactly match the information that's in the Social Security database. So, and they sent letters to that effect to about 70,000 drivers in Alabama. And of course, they started with the drivers who had licenses for the longest, who were mostly senior citizens. So seniors got this letter, and they saw, you know, if you don't fix your information, you're not going to be able to drive. And so senior citizens poured into the Alabama DMV, and you had folks, you know, waiting in line literally for days. And then, I mean, my favorite part of this is one woman, after literally standing in line for like three days, was told, you know, she could fix her license and get a new license with the correct name, but of course she was going to have to pay the $18 fee to change it. And she, you know, she went, I believe in her own words, she hit the roof. So you see a lot of these concerns because people need to bring identification documents. They need to prove who they are. They need to bring their birth certificate in. And, you know, the punchline on all of this is, of course, that national ID cards don't protect Americans. They don't provide security. It's a very counterintuitive idea for most of us because we think that, and this is basic human psychology, we think that knowing someone tells us whether we're going to be secure with them. You know, we apply this principle with our friends, with our neighbors. The more we know, the better, you know, if we know who they are, we'll, you know, we'll be able to trust them. Well, that's not true in the abstract. It's not true when you look at the broad country. I mean, Timothy McVeigh, Ted Kaczynski, these were all people who were easily identified, the Beltway sniper. They were, these were folks who were able to get ID, but of course that provided no security or actual safety. I mean, Government Computer News called Real ID the worst security idea of 2005. That gives you a sense about you know, how it was regarded. In addition, of course, all the identity-based security measures that exist now that would key off a national ID, for example, the terrorist watch lists, are a complete debacle. I mean, there's more than a million identities in the terrorist watch list. People are stopped who are on the terrorist watch list all the time at airports, by police. And the lion's share of those cases, as a matter of fact, and I can think of very few cases where this is not true, those contacts resulted in absolutely nothing. So think about that. You have people who are on the terrorist watch list who are presumably very dangerous, though apparently not dangerous enough to actually arrest if you encounter them. So this entire identity-based security measure simply doesn't, it doesn't work, it doesn't protect us. It also, when you create a rigid standardization of identity documents, you also alienate a lot of people who are simply trying to live their lives in America. Specifically, a number of religious minorities have strong religious objections to being photographed. The Amish, the Mennonites, folks like these have long held a special place in America and have long been able to work within our federal system so as their religious beliefs are not trampled. Many states have found ways to create exceptions for religious beliefs. 
Now, something like a pass ID or real ID eliminates those exemptions. And it says that you will not be able to, you know, get a pass ID if you do not have your photo taken, if you do not submit to these requirements. So these are, I mean, no one is going to infiltrate the Amish in order to get, you know, access to our country, to get an ID that doesn't have a photograph. Nor is an ID that doesn't have a photograph going to, you know, get them anywhere. And matter of fact, I suspect that it would arouse much more suspicion than simply presenting a photo document that doesn't, you know, a regular photo document. But something like Pass ID wipes that out. Washington is in a culture of crisis, some real, much imagined, and the stakes for liberty are higher now than they've been in many, many years. Cato Institute senior fellow Tom G. Palmer, author of the new Cato book, Realizing Freedom, Libertarian Theory, History, and Practice, gave a Cato University audience a thorough accounting of the emerging threats to liberty in the coming months and years. Let me mention that a few of the things that are emerging threats to liberty as I see it. We should expect assaults on our private savings, on our investments and retirement accounts as the state begins to drown in red ink. This happened in Argentina where the entire private investment and retirement system was confiscated by the state. And they did it, of course, to protect people from the unpredictability of the market by giving them the absolute certainty of confiscation. <laughs> and of course, the huge expenditures on state health care that are being proposed. There is some dawning realization in some parts of the electorate, not yet in the Obama administration or Nancy Pelosi's office, that you can't actually give free medical care to everyone, expand medical coverage, and cut the amount of money spent. Turns out that isn't possible. I recall I was mentioning at dinner here one of my favorite recent headlines from one of the Washington papers, I think it was the Post. Obama urges agencies and states to spend a trillion dollars quickly, but wisely. <laughs> and I remember seeing that and I thought, I think I could spend a trillion dollars quickly, but not wisely. And if I spent it wisely, it certainly would not be quickly. But we're going to have both, both quickly and wisely. All of that money, all of these new state health care expenditures, of course, are being spent to save us money. If you read the articles and the arguments, it's going to save us a fortune. But have you ever noticed that tax cuts are presented they will cost the Treasury, after all, their tax expenditures, their money that isn't being taxed but could be. Well, like, that's like spending money, right? But every time the state proposes to spend money, it's a savings. Because by spending the money now, we'll avoid having to spend more money later. So the more we spend, the more we save. And the more you tax, the more you're cutting expenditures, because you're cutting wasteful tax expenditures, which most of us call our stuff, <laughs> right? What we earned, what belongs to us, is called in Washington a tax expenditure, because they decided not to tax it from you. Now, we should also get ready for increasing intervention into the operations of private business firms. There is proposal for a PAYZAR, some kind of imperial official with arbitrary power to determine what employees of firms are going to be paid, because actually they just know better. But it means that the presumption of liberty is being completely reversed. The presumption of liberty, which was the foundation of the, we could use the old-fashioned term, liberal idea, you should be careful in the United States using that word. I'm not referring to Hillary Clinton's political philosophy, but Adam Smith's. The idea was, it was presumed you may do what you want with what is yours, 
unless there is shown to be a good reason to stop you from doing so, because it harms someone else, for example. But the presumption is the state must justify its action. There's no necessity for you to justify your behavior. And that is being completely reversed, again, as we speak. Instead, you must demonstrate to the state that you should be allowed to do that. And the burden of proof increasingly is on you, not on the state. We have an increasing presumption of power. Get ready also for ever-increased reliance on new smart technologies to track the behavior, travel, expenditures, and personal habits of Americans. The motto for the new technologically advanced state is, if we can, we should. And they can do a lot with new technologies available to them and expect them to do exactly that, to monitor our spending habits, to intervene into our bank accounts, to track our visits to disapproved websites and more. Financial privacy is likely to be much more difficult to maintain. We should also expect greater restrictions on freedom of speech and on public dissent from government policies. Private citizens in the United States are already restricted in their support for candidates for office, or even for buying an advertisement that merely mentions the name of the candidate within so many days of the election. Voluntary donations, we're told, from the citizens allegedly distort the discussion, but certainly no more than actually holding power, having the bully pulpit, being able to hand out the taxpayer's money and having the reins of power in your hands. The attack on private organization of political opposition has had a huge impact on American politics, greatly increasing the rate of incumbent re-election, which may be one reason why incumbents like it so much. There is effectively one party in the United States, it's called the incumbent party, and they will act to do what is necessary to protect incumbents. Nowhere was this ever made more evident than in the state of California, when it was announced, when they redistricted, gerrymandered would be the correct technical term, the uh, boundaries of the state assembly and senate districts, it was made very explicit, we did this to protect every seat, Republican and Democrat. And although the Republicans were the minority party, all the Republicans in that party were incumbents. And of course, they signed on to protection of their seats through gerrymandering. We should expect more restrictions on the private media in the name of fairness. The fairness doctrine is being dusted off. A representative Pelosi wants to make sure that she can put people off the air if she thinks that their expressions are offensive, if radio stations are not broadcasting in the public interest, and we have a pretty good idea what that is going to mean as a consequence. And at the academic level, increasing calls among the professoriate law professors and so on, for similar restrictions on print media. How dare the New York Times express their views, their corporation, and that distorts public discussion if a corporation is allowed to express their views in the editorial pages of their paper. So in my view, free speech is very much at risk in the next decade. But the suppression will come in the name of fairness, ensuring that all the discussions are reasonable, they're balanced, and they're not offensive to anyone. Of course, voluntarily funded research and advocacy groups are also on the agenda for control, as they already are in many countries of the world. Ideas, opinions, and information are only allowed when they are in accord with a view that vests more and more power in the state, which usually means when they are produced by the organs of the state itself. After all, would you let someone go around Eating poisonous food? No, if you saw someone eating a plate of poison, you would stop them. Well, shouldn't you stop them if you see them ingesting poisonous ideas? Which is more important after all? We mustn't allow people to disagree with the trend of vesting more and more power in the state. Now, one of the trends that I consider to be very worrisome on the horizon is the trend towards protectionism. I was in London during the G20 meetings to outline the case for free trade. And of course, all the assembled grandees insisted that they were going to resist the trend toward protectionism, 
they would make sure that this did not happen. The World Bank Institute released a report around that same time that showed that already 17 of the 20 in the G20 had instituted new forms of protectionism. It already had happened before they went to London to say, we're going to make sure that this does not happen. Tariff rates are rising. Trade wars are already underway. And not just between some small countries far away that you probably haven't heard of, but between the United States, think by American laws, and our neighbors to the south and north, Mexico and Canada. And very few people seem terribly shocked by this. We should remember the Smoot-Hawley tariff and the catastrophic impact that it had in not only the United States, but around the world. U.S. exports fell 50% after the passage of Smoot-Hawley. Uh, within two years, international trade around the world had fallen by 70%. That accounts for a substantial amount of what we call the Great Depression. Protectionism is also especially insidious because it helps us set the stage for armed conflict, as an enormous body of political science and economic research has shown. Recent study by professors Solomon Palachik and Carlos Segli of SUNY Binghamton and Rutgers reviewed the literature and the data and found a very strong inverse correlation between trade and investment on the one hand and war and armed conflict on the other. That is to say, the greater the freedom of trade, the lower the chance of war and vice versa. Eric Gardsky of Columbia University in his research has shown that the much-hailed democratic peace, the thesis that democracies are much less likely to go to war with each other, is in fact merely a case of the more general capitalist peace. That is, nations with free trading relationships amongst themselves that have market-based economies are much less likely to wage war on each other. Now given the enormous dynamic of intervention, after intervention, after intervention, that a return to protectionism would cause, I consider it one of the most insidious and dangerous of the emerging threats to liberty. Much of what is going on is driven by the mentality of crisis. When we find ourselves in a crisis, we seem to just abandon rational thought. We forget to ask questions. We simply assume they must know what they're doing. There's a very important syllogism, logic, Major premise, something must be done. Minor premise, this is something. Conclusion, therefore this must be done. <laughs> the politicians understand that logic very, very well. Some of you may have seen Rahm Emanuel, President Obama's chief of staff, on television last November. He stated, quote, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that is an opportunity to do things that you did not think you could do before. That was pretty clear about how he views this. This is an opportunity to do things like take over the healthcare system that they could not have done before. They will take advantage of this because they know most people are paralyzed by crisis. They will not ask hard questions. They roll over and they take the attitude, they must know what they're doing. Well, I think it's our job to ask hard questions. In fact, even to risk being insulted, being called unpatriotic, un-American, uncaring, unfair, because we want to know whether what is being proposed is actually justified. Will it work? That's that horrible question you should never ask in Washington. Will this work? Is it legal? That's another no-no in Washington. At the Cato Institute, we like to ruin cocktail parties by carrying around our little pocket constitutions. I hope all of you have those. And whenever you're with a typical Washington cocktail party sort of person, some of you know what I'm talking about, they will say, well, blah, 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 we're going to do this. And just ask the question and say, hmm, could you show me where in the Constitution the exercise of this power is authorized? It's considered really rude 
Constitutions shouldn't do that. And if you have the Constitution, because sometimes they'll say, oh, it's in like Article 6, Section something, 2. Well, and then you, that's when you take it out and say, well, show me. Can you find it where this exercise of power is authorized? We want to know whether these exercises of power are compatible with our values and principles. Because we don't want to abdicate our responsibilities as free persons and merely give a free hand to the politicians and the special interests to do what they please with our businesses, our assets, our opinions, our educations, our families, and our lives. Those are all ours. And we want to insist that our rights are maintained. Now available from the Cato Institute Senior Fellow Johann Norberg's Financial Fiasco, How America's Infatuation with Homeownership and Easy Credit Created the Economic Crisis. The book shows the irresponsible behavior that got us here and the so-called cures that may be worse than the disease. Financial Fiasco is now available at CatoStore.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.